Our scripture this morning is from John 15, 18 through 27. This is found on page uh, 902 in your pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those home as a gift from us. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kay. Well, good morning again. Welcome to Christ Community. We're glad that you're here. If I have not met you before, my name is Bill Gorman. I serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, as we continue in our service together, I would love to take a minute and pray uh, that the Holy Spirit, who we've been reading about, who Jesus just spoke about in this passage, would be at work um, bringing his word to life for us now. So let's do that. Father in heaven, thank you that you have inspired your word, that the Holy Spirit um, moved the authors of scriptures to record your word with their own personalities and uniquenesses, but your word um, without error for us, and that you have preserved that. We thank you for the men and women who copied that and translated it so that we can now read it and enjoy it. We pray that Today, this morning, it would become much more than just letters on a page, but it would become life to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, our expectations shape our experience profoundly, don't they? Our expectations shape our experience profoundly. In fact, uh, maybe kids and parents, maybe you had an expectation this morning that you were going to be downstairs hanging out in your classroom. And then you're like, oh, I guess I'm hanging out with my mom and dad upstairs today. So maybe that, that expectation was different than the, the reality when you got here. Well, I remember a few years back in, in 2015, uh, I had a moment where, where expectations and, and reality didn't line up. Rachel and I had an opportunity to go to Belfast, Northern Ireland. We were studying the life of C.S. Lewis. We had this amazing opportunity as Grant, and we were able to go and study there. And we were there, and we had our, our oldest daughter at the time, Lucy, was only 18 months old. She was just a little one. And we had done a lot of research trying to find just the perfect uh, Airbnb to stay for a few nights in, in Belfast, and we had this place, and we had these great expectations about what this place was going to be. You know, we thought it was going to be sort of a quiet, clean, quaint host in this lovely little loft in downtown Belfast. And when we got there, though, the reality was we opened the door, and there was a, a pile of dog poop on the floor. <laughs> 
And it was in this apartment that was across the street from a super noisy bar that played live music till like literally like 3 a.m. I mean, just like you could not sleep because the music was so loud. And we had this very kind of laissez-faire hipster host. I mean, just our expectations and then the reality of that place did not match up. It was not what we expected. And I'll never forget walking in that door, having just completed this transatlantic flight, just wanting to collapse into bed and get our, our daughter to bed and be like, oh my goodness, this is not what we expected. Now again, that would have been an unpleasant experience no matter what, but if the host had called ahead of time and said, you know, I got stuck at work, I didn't get to let the dog out, uh, may, you know, there might be an accident there, and you know, I'm really sorry, and we'll give you some, you know, refund some of your portion of the Airbnb, I, I don't know what the situation is, but I just want you to be aware that might be the case our expectation would have been totally different, right? It still would have been a rough situation, but our expectation would have been different going in. And now Jesus in this passage, I think is both setting and resetting his disciples' expectations about what following him will actually mean for their lives. Because we have to remember that even though the disciples have been with Jesus for a while now, they still, and, and I wonder, well, how could they, cannot fully comprehend what is about to happen to Jesus just even the very next day from when Jesus is speaking these words. And he's been dropping hints for a while now, Jesus has. Not even really hints. He's been telling them as plainly as he can that he is going to die, that he is going to suffer. Um, this is Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He says, I must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And the disciples, they still just don't really understand what he's talking about, what he's actually saying. And moreover, not only what this means for Jesus, but what this is going to mean for them as his closest followers. Because again, for them, their expectation of Messiah is that he's going to usher in a political kingdom at the very least, maybe more than that, but at the very least, if the Messiah is coming, like King David, he's going to rescue God's people from their enemies. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to set up a, a, a political kingdom on earth in that moment. And so their expectation is we're going to be these beloved liberators and victors with Jesus, and people are going to love us and be excited that we have helped bring about this promised liberation from Rome. But actually, Jesus is saying the reality something very different. Uh, you're going to be hated. You're going to be a hated witnesses of a king who looks, at least to the world, at the very best, looks like an utter failure. At worst, looks like an ongoing threat to the political order, one that needs to be, at times, even violently opposed. And what I, I find fascinating about these verses is that Jesus is teaching his disciples, and by extension, he's teaching you and me as well, how to handle hate, rejection, and opposition, even persecution, that results when we pledge our allegiance to Jesus above all else. And this teaching from Jesus about the hatred of the world for them, it comes immediately after his teaching about abiding with him. I thought a lot about that this week because, you know, we, we take a whole week in between these things, but this is one, you know, Jesus is one continuous speech here. And just moments before he says these words that we're studying this morning, he's talking about how he's chosen them to be his friends, how they are to abide in him and they in him, and they're going to produce fruit and this faithfulness, this closeness of relationship. 
Jesus has chosen them as his friends. He's chosen them to bear fruit. He's chosen them to abide with him and him with them. But then in these very next verses, he declares that that choice, his choosing of them, his choice to call them his friends, his choice to be with them, to abide with them, that choice will result in them being hated, rejected, persecuted. So just don't miss that ordering. If you, what Jesus is saying to us here in this passage is if you love him, obey him, have a friendship with him, that you will experience at times hatred and rejection because of him. For no other reason that you have called him friend and he has chosen you to be his friend. And just before these verses we were looking at this morning, Jesus, again, describes this relationship of, of fruitfulness, of friendship, And now he's preparing them for the reality that that fruitfulness, that that friendship, that that relationship will mean at times opposition, rejection, and hatred. So the question that we want to ask this morning, okay, is is faced with that reality. How do we respond? If Christians know that their friendship with Jesus, their relationship with him, will at times mean opposition, hatred, even persecution, how do we respond? How do, we, how do we respond to that? Well, I think there's at least a couple of ways that are possible. So one way could be sort of the way of accommodation. You say uh, you face opposition, you face hatred, you face rejection for your friendship, your relationship with Jesus, and you just decide to basically to, to lessen your allegiance to Jesus in order to make that rejection go away. So you sort of accommodate to the pressure around you, and you fit in more with the world rather than remaining with Jesus. And this is a really uh, enticing option, because for all of us, I think we are inclined toward comfort. We would rather not be misunderstood. We'd rather not be rejected. We'd rather not be um, harassed or rejected. And so out of a desire for comfort, it's very easy to accommodate, to say, I'm just going to distance myself from these things that Jesus said or maybe from him altogether. So we accommodate. The other side of that, though, the other way that we go is is retaliation. We actually say, I'm going to take kind of an aggressive fighting posture towards this. We strike back. We lash out. We adopt an enemy posture towards those people, whoever they are, who seem like they're against us. We rage against those who would harm us, that we are actually trying to to kind of stand on our rights all the time, that we almost adopt sort of a victim mentality along the way, that our desire for security makes that response deeply alluring, right? We all want to feel secure and protected, And so when we feel like there are people who are against us, who are harming us, or maybe trying to take something away from us, it's easy to take that retaliation approach of that desire for security. So security and comfort can can draw us into either kind of an accommodation approach or or a, a retaliation approach. But Jesus, I think, offers us a way that is neither of those and challenges both the security and the comfort that we so long for. For Jesus... He shows us a different way here in John chapter 15, a way that's neither accommodation nor retaliation. So how do we handle being hated because of Jesus? Well, Jesus gives us three keys, I think, in this passage to responding and preparing for that possibility of rejection for him. And the first one is this, that we have to expect it. If we're going to respond to this well, 
we have to expect it because half the battle is in the expectations, right? If you expect to be loved and welcomed at every turn, when you're hated, it will devastate you. On the other hand, if you are taking Jesus's words seriously, that friendship with him, that his choice of you to be his friend will at times mean that people will reject you, oppose you, misunderstand you. Then you can prepare with the needed resilience for the opposition. It's not going to surprise you. And this is how Jesus begins in chapter 15, verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, there are a couple important questions to ask even about these initial verses. One of them is, what does Jesus mean by the world that's going to hate his followers? And this is actually language that comes up in the Gospel of John quite a bit, this language of the world. And Gospel of John scholar D.A. Carson, he puts it this way, I think it's helpful. He says, the world is not the universe in general, but the created order, especially humans in rebellion against God. So when we as humans are in rebellion against God, we are the world. That's how John is using that language in his gospel. It's humans in that created order who are rebelling against God. Now, the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6 that for followers of Jesus, our ultimate enemy is not other human beings, right? Our ultimate enemy is not flesh and blood, but the powers and the principalities, that we have a supernatural, personal evil enemy who's behind that. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, when that supernatural, personal evil enemy enticed humans into rebellion against God, there has been a world who has been aligned with him and his kingdom. And friends, every single one of us is born into that kingdom because of our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, because of their rejection, their rebellion, their choosing to align with the evil one who's opposed to God. We are all born in that world system, opposing Jesus and his kingdom. That's our, that's our default setting from the time we were born. But Jesus, in his mercy and grace, says here, I'm choosing some of you to follow me, to come and be my friends. And it's only when he does that, when he rescues us from the kingdom of the evil one, that we are free. And so when we align ourselves now with Jesus in his kingdom, it necessarily means that we are now at opposition to this kingdom that's opposed to him. Now, intimacy with Jesus has an accent. Intimacy has an accent. When we spend time with Jesus, our lives develop a certain accent that marks us out as being associated with him. Again, when we were in Belfast, Northern Ireland, the moment that we opened our mouths, it was obvious that we were not from Belfast, right? The uh, Northern Irish accent is very distinct, very recognizable. And the moment that we opened our mouths in that city, it was clear, we are not from around here. Our accent marked us out as being different. Now, in Northern Ireland, it's a very hospitable, welcoming people. That fact that we had a different accent didn't cause us any hardship or to be treated negatively. But you can think about it. In different times in history and around the world, depending on your accent, it marks you out as potentially someone who's an enemy. Right? You think about if you were an American living in the United States during World War II, but you had a thick German accent. You were an, an immigrant from Germany. How that accent would immediately cause suspicion that you're, are you aligned with the enemy that we're fighting in Europe? Or even today, you might think of an American or someone with an American accent in a place like Iran or North Korea. 
that accent marks you off as different, belonging to a people who's potentially an enemy. Our intimacy with Jesus gives our lives an accent that reveals us as foreigners in a world that is opposed to Jesus' kingdom. Our accent gives us away, and sometimes that accent of intimacy will cause oppression, rejection, hatred. And if we don't expect that opposition, we put ourselves at risk of falling away from Jesus. He actually says this, part of the reason he's like, I'm telling you all this so you don't stumble, you don't fall away. He says this in in chapter 16, verse 1. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Again, this is, he's trying to set their expectations appropriately so that when they encounter opposition, when they encounter resistance, when they encounter rejection, that they're not devastated, but rather are prepared. Jesus said that it would be this way. And actually, in one of Jesus' most well-known parables, uh, the story of the sower or the, the parable of the soils, as it sometimes it's called, where Jesus talks about the sower who goes out to sow seed. One of the ways uh, that, that certain seed does not bear fruit, that doesn't endure, is because of opposition and resistance. This is how the New Living Translation captures this. It says, the seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long they fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. That's the exact same word that that Jesus uses here in John chapter 15, this language of persecution. So both having a proper expectation around what being aligned with Jesus means, that sometimes that will mean hatred, misunderstanding, opposition, as well as having deep roots in a relationship with Jesus are necessary if you're going to continue to faithfully and fruitfully follow Jesus in a world that is aligned against him. So this brings us to our second key this morning. So the first is, if you're going to respond well, you have to expect it. You can't be caught off guard. Second is remember that it isn't about you. Remember that rejection, that opposition, that misunderstanding, that's not about you. Jesus is clear. It isn't about you. It's about him. The world hated him first. The only reason that you're being hated by the world is because you have been chosen by him to be his friend, to be with him. And if we are with him, that hatred will come to us too. So listen to how Jesus continues here in verse 20. He says, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus is saying, this is not about you. This is about me. They are opposed to me, and because you're with me, they are opposed to you also. Now, I want to be very clear here. It is possible to suffer because you are just a jerk to other people. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. And I think sometimes as Christians, there's going to be moments where it's like, oh, I'm being persecuted. And it's like, no, actually, you're just being a jerk. And don't blame Jesus for that. If you suffer because you're a jerk, you're just suffering because you're a jerk. But Jesus is talking about this hatred on account of his name because of the accent that comes with an intimacy with him. Now, the apostle Peter, who was in that room that night with Jesus, hearing these words, later writes a letter to a group of churches encouraging them in their relationship with Jesus. And you can hear him reflecting on what Jesus said that night in the letter of 1 Peter. So listen to what Peter writes. He says, If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. But now listen to verse 15, which is basically he said, but if you suffer for being a jerk, that's your own fault. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. So he's saying there's a way that you can suffer that has nothing to do with the fact that you're associated with Jesus. It just has the fact that you are doing things to other people that you ought not. But, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian because they've aligned themselves with the name of Jesus, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. There is a way that you can suffer for just being a mean person. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But if you suffer because you're a Christian, for no other reason that you are associated with Jesus, don't be ashamed, Peter says, but let that person glorify in God for having that name, for being counted as one of Jesus' friends, being counted as worthy of, of being called a Christian. And because of our suffering for Jesus isn't about us, we need, therefore, we need an apprenticeship narrative around suffering, not a victim narrative. Those are really radically different ways of approaching suffering and persecution, opposition, resistance. There's an apprenticeship narrative, and there's a victim narrative. Let me explain what I mean by those two. So a, a victim narrative is one that's marked by self-pity, kind of woe is me, blaming others, constantly trying to get what we think we're owed by, by others or by the society or culture. It's a narrative that always sees um, those people out there as out to get us and, um, and trying to, to crush us and oppose us. But an apprenticeship narrative recognizes that being a follower of Jesus simply means that this comes with the territory. That if they, I mean, Jesus says this, right? He says, if I'm your master, you are not greater than, you as my servants are not greater than me. If they oppose me, they're going to oppose you too. Part of being a follower of Jesus, being an apprentice of him, learning life with him, becoming more like him will mean that this is a part of the normal expectation of what it means to be an apprenticeship, an apprentice with Jesus, a disciple, a follower of him. And so then you no longer see yourselves as, as, a, as a victim when those things come, but you say, this is actually exactly what Jesus said would happen, and it's part of me learning to identify with him, to experience life as he experienced it, that we should expect that at times. And again, in the spirit of, of 1 Peter, we shouldn't be doing things that bring that upon us unnecessarily, but just knowing that aligning our lives with Jesus will mean that as apprentices, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be opposition at times. It knows that this is part of our relationship with Jesus. It isn't surprised by it. And, and that doesn't mean, as an apprenticeship narrative, that we, we can't or shouldn't pursue legal recourse at times in the, the kind of the cultural moment, if you have those options available to you in the particular governing structures, of course. But an apprentice in that moment does that out of a sense of preserving basic human freedoms and protections for all, even those who hold allegiances different than ours. It's not a matter of standing on your own rights, but of calling for the just and fair treatment of all people. And cultivating that apprentice mentality is, I think, increasingly important in our cultural moment because there is more and more explicit opposition to historic Christian belief and practice in our cultural moment. Uh, I've been helped by Baylor University sociologist George Yancey, and he, he's written a number of books, both kind of at an um, academic uh, peer-reviewed level as well as at a popular level, that 
trace this theme of, of rising sort of opposition um, or discrimination against Christians. Now, Yancey's really careful, and I'm going to read you something from him in just a moment I think is so important. He's really careful to distinguish what he calls Christianophobia and persecution. So, he says this. He says, there are Christians who cry persecution at everything. And he says, let me be clear, I am not, nor have ever argued that Christians in the United States are being persecuted. Christians in the United States, unlike Christians in certain other countries, are not thrown in jail or killed specifically for their faith. If that changes in the future, then I will talk about Christians being persecuted in the United States. But right now, it is imprudent for Christians in the United States to talk about persecution. I think that's right. He's right about that. I think we do ourselves a disservice, especially to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the country who are, or other parts of the world, rather, who are truly experiencing persecution. He says, though, however, anti-Christian bias is real and produces tangible consequences. While Christians are not persecuted today in the United States, they do face the reality of anti-religious bigotry. And Christians, therefore, should take a middle ground approach where they avoid claims of persecution but recognize the reality of, modern, of how modern Christianophobia impacts society. I mean, that, I think, is a great example of what a posture, like an apprenticeship posture towards opposition looks like. It's not a victim narrative that cries persecution to everything or tries to use that as a means of, of, a, of a, a gaining of power or taking back of power and status, but rather an apprenticeship narrative that rightly seeks to cultivate fairness for all and tells the truth about bias, but makes the focus Jesus and his kingdom and the good news of what he's doing. The focus isn't on them and, and the harm that's been done to them. So when you remember that it isn't about you, when you remember that it's about Jesus, you don't have to have a defensive posture, have a welcoming posture of winsome love that bears witness to his goodness and love and sufficiency in all of life. And in that way, opposition can become an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus. Which leads us to our third key today, and that is that remember hate can't stop the mission. So if you're going to face this, well, you have to expect it. You have to remember it's not about you, it's about Jesus. And remember that hate can't stop the mission. Since this mission isn't about us, it's not dependent on us, hate can't stop it. Because yes, we do have a supernatural enemy, but we have also been granted supernatural help. Because look down at verse 26, where Jesus again promises the Holy Spirit. He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. We aren't doing this on our own. In fact, if this mission were up to mere human strength, you and I would not be sitting here today, 2,000 years later, in a culture, a language, and again, hundreds and hundreds of years difference in time. This would have, movement would have died out a long, long time ago. But because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, who bears witness to Jesus in and through us, but we're not doing this on our own in our own strength, Jesus' mission of calling men and women, boys and girls, out of the kingdom of opposition into his kingdom of light and grace and truth and peace, that has continued and it continues today. Friends, we sitting here in Kansas City in 2023 bear witness to the fact that hatred cannot stop this mission. The very fact that we have heard this message, that we have come to know and love and treasure Jesus, shows us that that is true. But if we're going to continue the mission, we have to learn to build resilience 
to rejection. Build resilience to opposition. So how do we build that sort of resilience? I'm going to give you just three quick ideas here. One is, first of all, create or, and cultivate that friendship with Jesus. If you missed Pastor Taylor's message last week on John 15, 1 through 17, uh, it is worth going back to listen. It was an outstanding message on what does it mean to have this abiding relationship with Jesus, one where he chooses you and calls you as his friend. It's by cultivating a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus that we develop the kinds of roots, to use the metaphor of the parable of the sower, the kinds of roots that will go deep and won't be toppled, won't be stumbled by opposition and hatred. Second is this, to learn from those who have done it well. Learn from those who have done it well. About 18 months ago, I started uh, learning the, the craft, the hobby of, of woodworking. I've really enjoyed it. But in the process of doing this, I, I've watched lots and lots of YouTube videos, checked out books from the library, because I knew, right, that it, I, I'm not only going to be super frustrated, but maybe even risk bodily injury if I'm not learning from others how to use these tools and techniques along the way, right? People have been doing this woodworking thing for hundreds of years. It would be foolish for me to say, I'm going to try to figure it out all on my own without any help from others who have mastered this. In a similar way, friends, I mean, it may feel like it in some ways, but we are not. <laughs> Certainly, we are not the first people to face opposition or rejection or hatred or dislike for following Jesus. We're simply not. <laughs> I mean, people around the world and all throughout the history of the church have navigated this in every time and place and culture where the church has been. It's faced opposition at times, sometimes severely. And so we can learn. We don't have to go far. We can even just look at our brothers and sisters in minority and immigrant churches, even in the United States in our contemporary moment, who often face opposition or suspicion simply for their either their literal accent or the color of their skin or whatever it might be. We can learn from them. We can learn from our ministry partners. From, uh, we have partners who are doing church planting work in Iran and in China and northern Kenya and often face opposition, even violent opposition, for their allegiance to Jesus. It's a great way to listen to their stories, to learn how do they face this with joy, which is the third suggestion here which is to build joy in the body of Christ. See, you will never have the resilience you need to be able to face rejection and shame that you will inevitably experience as an apprentice of Jesus in your life without a local church family whose faces light up when you walk in the room. You need a group of people that when you walk through the doors of this building on Sundays, or when you go to your community group, or when you show up to your Bible study, that their faces light up with joy because they are glad to see you who remind you that this Jesus who we've committed our lives to is worth following, even in the face of misunderstanding, confusion, bigotry, hatred. You need other people to say, yes, he really is as good as he's promised to be. This is worth it. I do love you. There may be people who misunderstand you, who reject you, but we love you. You need that. And that doesn't happen just by occasionally coming on a Sunday morning. It happens when we get deep into relationship and know people through community groups, studies, serving, all of that, where this really becomes a family, where it's more than a metaphor, that becomes a reality, where we care for one another. To close, I want to tell you a story that kind of brings this all together. It's from the book of Acts, which tells the, the story of the early church. And you see these different elements come together. Paul and a guy named Silas, they are in the ancient city of Philippi. 
And they've started planning a church there. They've met some women, um, and they've led them to faith in Jesus, and they're starting to meet and gather for this church. And as they're going around the town, Paul also, he ends up liberating this girl who was enslaved. She had a demon. The people who owned her were using that demon to tell people their fortunes, and they would pay for this. And so now that Paul has liberated this woman, both from this girl from this slavery, uh, both to these people, but as well as this enslavement to this demonic power and force, now they aren't making their income anymore. So a riot breaks out, and Paul and Silas, they're beaten up, and they're thrown into prison. But you know what? They, they were prepared. They were expecting this because Jesus had told them, this is going to happen. And so they don't have a victim narrative about that. They have an apprenticeship narrative. And so they are there in prison, and they start singing, and they start praying. They are enjoying a community of love and joy, even with one another, as they are suffering in prison. And then there's this earthquake that happens. This is a cra- You should read this in Acts chapter 16 sometime. It's one of those crazy stories of the Bible, all of this. An earthquake happens. The doors of the prison open, and the jailer is about to commit suicide because he thinks all the prisoners are going to run away. I'm going to be executed for failure of duty. And Paul stops him. He says, no, we, we are all still here. We haven't run away. And then this jailer guy, he becomes a Christian. And now you have this, this slave girl. You've got this business leader, Lydia. You've got this blue-collar prison worker who are now all part of this new church family in Philippi. And later, Paul writes a letter to that church, which we have in our Bibles as the letter to the Philippians. And he says, my goal is to know him, to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Now, if you're anything like me, you love the idea of knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Would you rather pass on knowing him in the fellowship of his sufferings? But for Paul, those two things, they go hand in hand. So my prayer for us, my prayer for me, is that we would have a relationship with Jesus, a friendship with Jesus, stuff that we would not only long to know him in the power of his resurrection, but also in the fellowship of his sufferings. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us your word. And I pray that you would give us that same longing as the Apostle Paul to know you in the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. That we would trust that there is joy even in those places. And we would count it as a glory that we get to be called friends of Jesus. And that that friendship at times means that people will misunderstand or even hate us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.